Morning. No handout today. Turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. If you have a pew Bible, then bring your own. You can turn to page 548. 548. Luke 10. Hey, on your way in today, you might have seen some uh, pastries for sale. Uh, That's because Monique Lopez, I'm not sure that I see her, she might still be out there, uh, is uh, raising some funds for um, her, her kidney uh, tests and potential transplant um, that she's going to be taking a trip out to New Mexico tomorrow. And so if you didn't see it on the way in, on your way out today, grab a pastry um, and contribute to Monique Lopez, who's trying to raise money um, to help her with her um, kidney transplant that she so desperately needs. And so we're praying for her, and uh, I, I thank you for your support of her. Also, uh, as Monica said, Thanksgiving feast is coming. This is my favorite event of the year. Uh, if you don't go to this, you're making a mistake because it is the greatest meal you will ever have. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. The best meal of the year. And uh, we need everybody to help. We actually ask that every single person that comes, that every household that comes, we ask that at least one of those people uh, help us out for the feast. And it really does take um, dozens and dozens of people to make this event happen. So please, please make a point of signing up for that. You can even leave it on the pew as you leave today and we'll pick that up on our way out. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37 today. As I was getting ready for uh, the finishing touches of this message yesterday, uh, I was uh, uh, quarantined by my wife. Uh, I had a sinus infection, and yesterday morning, I woke up and I just had bloodshot red eyes. I could barely open them. They were super swollen. Whatever you think of my eyes now, they are glorious in comparison to what they were yesterday. And we thought, okay, probably just related to the sinus infection, probably just conjunctivitis, but just in case, just in case this is pink eye, we're going to quarantine you. And so... My children woke up uh, yesterday morning, and their daddy was off-limits, completely off-limits. I was either away in the office or secluded on one part uh, of the couch in, in the main living room, and the children were told all day, don't touch daddy. Now, for those of you that have ever been in a situation like that where you've been quarantined and you have small kids, uh, that's not exactly easy. For the little kids, because they look at you and they're like, but I want to jump on dad. You know, I want to kiss dad. I want to hug dad. I want to play with dad. And so especially the youngest, Amelia, who's two, she just kept walking over and was like, oh, daddy, you sick? And she just, she wanted to come and touch me. And we just kept saying, no, daddy's off limits today. You can't show your love to daddy. He is off limits. Well, Interestingly enough, in Luke 10, the very topic of our story today is the topic of limiting love. The title of this message is, Is There a Limit to Your Love? Are there areas in your life where your love doesn't go? Are there places in your life where you, you think about those places and those areas and those peoples and those, those groups and you think, well, my love goes this far, but it doesn't go that far? 
Are there areas in your life where your love is limited? Is there a limit to your love? Stand with me, if you will, as we read from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to the lawyer, What is, your re- read, uh, what, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So the lawyer answered and said, uh, It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to the lawyer, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who, who is my neighbor? Verse 30, Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. The thieves stripped him of his clothes, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw the wounded man, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked, but passed by on the other side. 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where the injured man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he, so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, two coins, and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of this man. And whatever more you spend, when I come again, I'll repay you. Now Jesus turns again to the lawyer in verse 36 and says, So which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which of these three, lawyer, do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. You may be seated. I've heard this story, Pastor. Come on, let's do something new. I know this story. Do you? Do you really know this story? Because it's my contention that this story is one of the most relevant stories in all the Gospels. That it can be preached again and again and again and still not resonate in the hearts of those who hear it. So if you have heard this story before, or if you feel that you're so very familiar with it that there can't possibly be something new that you could learn, I urge you to listen again for the first time. Verse 25 again through 28. Behold, a certain lawyer stood and tested Jesus. Teacher, 
what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, well, what is written in the law? You're a lawyer. What's written in the law of Moses? What is your reading of it? And the lawyer answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, right. You have answered rightly. Do that and you'll live. Lawyers, some of you laugh. <laughs> Do we have any? No, I'm not going to ask that. Lawyers, you know, love them or hate them. You love them when you need them. You usually don't like them when you don't need them. But when you need a lawyer, boy, you're all, you, you wrap your arms around them. But lawyers, just as today, so also in the first century, but in some ways, um, there's a little bit more of a, an esteem and a, res, and a respect for lawyers in the days of Jesus. Today, there's more uh, negative connotations. Uh, they're, they're, uh, the connotations of the modern age is that lawyers, you know, they, they just take your money. They, they, just, they just try to cheat you. They just try to, you know, tell you you have a case when you don't, and, and they try to swindle you a little bit. Well, that was a part of what it meant to be a lawyer in the first century. But there was a whole other side to being a lawyer in the first century, and that was it was in a highly, highly esteemed and respected position in ancient Israel. The common folk would look upon a lawyer and think, well, there's an individual who is very, very knowledgeable and wise, understands the law of Moses, is a good Jew, a good religionist, someone who follows God. A lawyer was, was very simply put in the first century uh, Israel, was a, one who studied and knew the law of Moses. Not just you know, the U.S. Constitution of today, but, but rather, or, or state laws, or, or county or local laws, but rather someone who was focused on religious law, the law of Moses. And so there was an elevated respect and admiration for lawyers in Jesus' day. The lawyer asked Jesus, tested him actually, it says in verse 25, what shall I do, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Inherit, the Greek word kleronomeo, kleronomeo. It's a verb meaning to inherit or to, 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 to earn, to, uh, to, uh, to come into, to kind of have something uh, given to you as a gift, to be an heir of some great prize or reward or gift. Kleronomeo, to gain possession of something valuable. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know, theolog theologians today, they squabble over this word inherit that is used by the lawyer. They wonder whether it means to simply receive eternal life or whether it means to receive special reward and perhaps a special honor from God in the afterlife. But the solution to this issue lies not in analyzing the verb itself. Let me say that again. The solution to that squabble lies in not defining the verb itself. The verb itself does mean to inherit something. But the way we figure out what this lawyer is talking about is by entering into the mind of a first century Jewish man, particularly a Jewish lawyer. We know from ancient Jewish writings what they thought about eternal life. 
And they believed unequivocally that eternal life was something that they earned. They believed that heaven was for the pious and the pious alone. Speaking of another similar story in the Gospels, Jody Dillo, a great theologian, writes this. He says, the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis during Jesus' day, taught that works were necessary in order, excuse me, that works were necessary in order to inherit eternal life. In the Jewish mind, he goes on to say, entering heaven, inheriting eternal life, and having eternal life were all the same thing. And they all meant, go to heaven when I die. He goes on to say, the Jewish person, however, was unaware that eternal life could be had now. That one could enter into it immediately by faith and not have to wait until the final judgment. So, I uh, would agree wholeheartedly with uh, Dillo's assessment there of the Jewish mind in the first century as Jesus interacts with it. They, to a man, every single one of them, had lost their way and in the pharisaical traditions that had been passed down through the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers of the law, they had come to believe at this juncture in the Jewish, uh, across the, 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 the nation of Israel, they had come to believe that they had to be good before God to enter into glory, to enter into heaven. They were unaware that eternal life could be something that they could get right now by faith and faith alone. They had lost their way. So when, if we were to simply put ourselves into the shoes of the first century Jewish lawyer, we would come to learn the thrust of his question. He wants to go to heaven, yes, but he also wants to be well regarded in heaven just as he is admired in his earthly life. And he is asking Jesus, teacher, how do I get all of this? How do I get all of this? How do I go to heaven and how do I be admired? How do I receive accolades, commendation? How do, how do I get there, Lord, and, and to have God Almighty look down upon me and, and say, well done, you did a great job on earth. And this teacher is asking Jesus this. He's testing Jesus with this question. Teacher, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus, in good Socratic style, I think he taught that to Socrates, actually, answers the lawyer's question with another question. And he said to him, he says, well, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Now, at this point, you might wonder and I might wonder, wait a minute, why doesn't Jesus just answer the question? And Jesus knows the answer. He knows that the Jewish people have lost their way, that they've resorted to good works, legalism, pharisaical living to get to heaven. He knows that they've bought into the lie of good works and following the letter of the law. And you might wonder, why doesn't Jesus answer the man's question? Why doesn't he simply tell the man, you've got it all wrong, it's by faith. If you simply believe in me, you can have eternal life. Why doesn't Jesus give that answer to the man right here, right now, Presented without opportunity. Jesus, tell the lawyer the good news. Tell him salvation's not by works. 
tell him that salvation is by grace, through faith, that it's a free gift, not something that can be earned. Tell him, Jesus. I submit to you that God is uh, infinitely wiser than we are, that he's a much better teacher than you or I, and that he knows precisely the lessons that a man or woman needs to learn before they can come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Jesus knew in his infinite wisdom that this man, this lawyer right in front of him, was not ready for the saving knowledge that salvation is by grace through faith. He knew this man was not even, re- not even close to being ready to hear that word, that gospel, that good news. Jesus knew the man would not have even understood it. The lawyer's life was consumed with law, regulation, boundaries, limits, piety, good works. And so rather than teach the lawyer a great truth that he would not understand, Jesus instead opts to teach him another lesson, a lesson that is a precursor of all who would wish to come to Christ alone, in faith alone. Jesus instead wishes to show this man that for all his expertise in the law of Moses, that he falls short of it. That he falls short of its requirements. Jesus knows that if he can show this lawyer that he falls short of the law, then perhaps this man will finally see his pride for what it is and come back to Jesus on bended knee rather than in pride. You see, folks, in the mind of Christ, as he's answering this man, Jesus believes that there is nothing until, until a person, until a person knows that there is nothing they can do to gain eternal life, then Jesus knows that their heart is not ready to receive the free gift of everlasting life. Jesus believes, as he's talking to the man, that until this man understands that there's nothing he can do, zero, nada, nothing he can do, he must learn this lesson. That until he learns that lesson, that there's nothing he can do to get to heaven, until he learns that, Jesus knows that whatever else he says to him is going to fly right by. No way is this man ready for the gospel. Do you know that there's nothing that you can do to gain everlasting life? Do you know that salvation is not by works? You cannot earn it. You cannot work for it. Have you let that truth settle down into your heart? Because it's a glorious truth and it's, 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 it's exceedingly hard to learn because everything in life you have to work for, don't you? You work for a paycheck. You work to put food on the table. You, you, you have to work for everything in life. And Jesus is saying to you and to me, you don't have to work for this. You don't have to do one thing for this. You can't earn it. You can't be pious enough. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good things 
All you must do is believe and you can receive this gift. Believe in my son and you will have the gift of everlasting life. The lawyer was not ready for such words. He was stuck in the law, stuck in works, stuck in the false belief that his works could earn him salvation. And so Jesus angled his response to the man. He angled that response to directly combat the man's false belief. And he says to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? You have faith in the law, Mr. Lawyer. You believe you keep the law? Okay, fine. Let's talk about law for a minute. What is written in it? What's your reading of it? And the man answers and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And your neighbor is yourself. Perfect recapitulation of the Jewish law, by the way. He's drawing on parts of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He, he's encapsulated the answer that a lawyer or a scribe of Israel would have given had they been asked that same question. The lawyer gives a pristine answer. And Jesus, playing along, again, playing along with the man for a moment, recognizes the answer. And he says, you're right. That's exactly what the law says. Good reading. Good reading of the law. That's a sharp analysis. Love the Lord with everything you got. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right. Yes. Do that and you'll live. If you perfectly obey what you just said, then God will grant you everlasting life. Guaranteed. Well, at this point, the lawyer is feeling pretty good about himself. After all, he was an expert in the law. He believed he was, well, excellent, flawless in his execution of the law, in his interpretation, and in his performance of it. He loved God. He loved his fellow Jewish countrymen, which is surely what God meant when he said the word neighbor in Leviticus, uh, right? He thinks in his head. Yeah, that, that's right. At least he felt reasonably sure that, that that's what God meant. But here is where we begin to see the beauty of Jesus' answer to the lawyer. As Jesus, for a time, takes that angle and starts interacting with the lawyer in his own pride. Here is where we begin to see the beauty of Jesus' answer. Because slowly, and you can't see it in the text, you can't see it, but I promise you, it's there. It's between verses 28 and 29. In fact, you could put a little mark between 28 and 29 and, and, and put down the words, uh, uh, you, you, you could put in a little note there that says, you know, something's happening in the lawyer's heart here. Because between verses 28 and 29, something great is happening in this man's heart. Slowly, ever so subtly, the lawyer is starting to second-guess himself. His mind was a little unsure of the definition of neighbor. His heart was faintly, just faintly, feeling conviction that perhaps he may not fully understand just how far God wanted him to extend neighborly love. And so a bit uncomfortable now, 
but, but still in his pride from Jesus' response that he is right to verse 29, we see him capitulating, a little tinge in his heart. And he, wanting to justify himself, wanting to save face, he, he wants to put on a good persona here, but he's a little unsure about this one. Verse 29, he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor again? Who is my neighbor, Jesus? My, my neighbors are uh, my fellow Jews, right? Jesus, right? That's, I, I, I'm a lawyer. I know the answer. They're my countrymen, right? We might say, my neighbors, Jesus, are my fellow uh, you know, middle class, middle to upper class maybe, well-educated, uh, married, 2.5 kids, a dog. Um, they've got respectable careers. They drive pretty good cars, got a nice house. They go to church. They, they look like me, right, Jesus? Those are my neighbors, right? Those are my neighbors. My neighbors are people that... That, that I like and that look like me. Right, Jesus? Surely, Jesus, surely my neighbors don't include um, other people. Yeah, you know, um, well, you know who I'm talking about, Jesus. Surely, surely my neighbors do not include people that are out there on the fringe. I mean, there are a lot of people out there, Lord. They don't, surely my neighbors don't include uh, illegal immigrants. And they're from another country, Jesus. Surely my neighbors don't include them. And Jesus, surely my neighbors, they, well, I saw one the other day, but uh, surely the homeless population, those, those aren't my neighbors, Jesus, right? Jesus, I mean, surely they've been, they've been, attacking me, my values. Uh, surely, Jesus, the homosexual community are not my neighbors. I mean, uh, we've got kind of a, we're kind of button heads, Jesus. Our, our value systems uh, about marriage are just not the same. So surely those people are not my neighbors, right, Jesus? And Jesus, I mean, this is a given. I mean, surely Muslims are not my neighbors because, I mean, look what they, those people have been doing around the world and, and to our own country. And Lord, you, you would not include them, of course, in the term neighbor, right? Right, Jesus? Jesus answered, verse 30, and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves the thieves stripped him of his clothes, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and, and looked and passed by on the other side. The lawyer is... Uh, little tinge. I, I think I am justified, Jesus. I, I think I'm, I've, I've followed the law, but, but who, who is my neighbor one more time? Jesus answers again a question 
with uh, really an enigma, a story, a parable to get him to think. And he begins this parable about a man who journeys from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho, which uh, would have been about a 17-mile journey, descending, by the way, about 2,500, maybe 3,000 feet. Uh, There would have been a nice little descent to that journey. It would have been a windy road. would have been a treacherous road. The journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was well known in Jesus' day. Once you said, I'm going to Jericho, people would go, hey, you know, Godspeed, be safe. Be careful. That's a treacherous road. So the lawyer would have, would have picked up on, he would have understood the kind of journey that this man was going to take as Jesus is relaying this story out of nowhere. The man who was on this journey was presumably a Jewish man. Jesus doesn't say as much, but it's, I think it's implied there, there in the text. And uh, because he's coming from Jerusalem, no less. And the man gets attacked by thieves. They strip him, they wound him, and they leave him for dead. They uh, obviously uh, presumably steal money and valuables from him and uh, leave him on the side of the road in a ditch. The man is, is bleeding and bruised and wounded, half dead. Half dead. That's significant injury there. This man is in deep distress. He has been brutally attacked. The lawyer is uh, nodding his head as the story continues. And then come uh, six words, in English at least, that the lawyer perks up about. Verse 31, Now by chance a certain priest. Now by chance a certain priest. Now the lawyer lights up. Ah, yeah, yeah. You know, the priests, the scribes, me, the Pharisees. Yeah, this, here comes the Calvary. Right? Here, here comes the, well, Jesus. I mean, I know I could finish the story for you, Jesus, because I'm a lawyer and I kind of understand these things. You've, you've just now introduced the hero of the story, Jesus. Good job. Want me to take it from here? Now, by chance, a certain priest came down the road and the lawyer expected a beautiful ending to the story. He expected the priest was going to stoop down, pick the man up, care for his wounds, help heal him and restore him and and bring him back to full health. The lawyer expected a, a wonderful, glorious story that ends with the priest, the religious leader, just like he was, of Israel demonstrating neighborliness and God's love. But Jesus, like he always does, he turns the man's world upside down. Like I said earlier in this message, you think you know this story? Let Jesus turn it upside down again for you. Now by chance a certain priest came down the road, but here's the twist. And when he saw the wounded man, he passed by on the other side. Wait, what? He passed by? On the other side, the Greek there is that he went out of his way. You know, the the road there, 
the journey there, it wouldn't have been a particularly wide road, but uh, you, you, know, you, you would have to go out of your way to avoid someone who was on that road. You would have to make a, make a strategic turn to the right or to the left to avoid what was before you. This priest passes by on the other side. Lawyer scratching his head. Okay, we'll go with that for a minute. Verse 32, likewise a Levite. Oh, okay, well, for whatever reason, Jesus was indicating the priest wasn't going to help, but surely the Levite will. The Levite, the Levites, well, they are helpers. The Levites are those who, uh, while the priests are also Levites, but Levites in particular were those who were assistants to the priests. They were those who were Levites, but not from the uh, genealogy of Aaron, who was the first priest, but instead the Levites were the helpers of the priests. And so, okay, the lawyer thinks, the helpers. All right, I got it. Jesus wants to emphasize we should be like the helpers. Surely the Levite has come, and now the story's going to finish well. A great helper has arrived. But Jesus twists it again. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked, came and looked, looked upon the man as he was half dead, inspected the man, looked upon his wounds, considered it, and then passed by on the other side, walked by. The greatest religious leaders of Israel, the ones most expected to help and show love, they pass by. The lawyer is very confused at this point. Jesus is really spinning his, his world. This is not a context that he understands at all. And now Jesus goes straight for the heart of the matter. Verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, then uh, when, I, when I come again, I will repay you. A Samaritan could have stopped right there in the lawyer's mind. Verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, oh, okay. The lawyer thinks we're going to just continue the theme here. When is he going to get to the hero? Because surely it's not this man. Once the lawyer hears the word Samaritan, he thinks that's Samaritan. Let's move on to the, the hero part of the story. Who's going to be the hero? A Pharisee, Jesus? You're going through the list of others. Surely it's not this man because a Samaritan in the first century Jewish culture was, they were half-breeds. They were half-Jew, half-Gentile. People looked upon them, full Jews, I mean full-blooded Jews, the real Jews, looked upon Samaritans and thought, these people are not worth it. They're second-class citizens. We don't mix with them. We don't socialize with them. They're a little bit different. They're a little bit strange. They live to the north. They interacted with the Gentiles. They got the bloodline mixed up. They're half-breeds. We don't like them. They don't like us. Why are you introducing a Samaritan into the equation, Jesus? This is crazy.
the lawyer was prejudiced against Samaritans. And guess what? He wasn't the only one. Luke 9, let's go back one chapter. Luke 9, verse 52. These are the disciples right in the middle of Luke 9, 52. And as they went, the disciples, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for Jesus. But they, the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Verse 54, and when his disciples, Jesus' disciples, James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? James and John, disciples of Jesus, go into Samaria, the area of the Samaritans, they don't welcome the disciples. The Samaritans say, no, we're not going to welcome you. And James and John, having their own prejudices against the Samaritans, go to Jesus and say, let's call down fire upon them. Let's burn their town. Let's burn their village. Quick to jump to the conclusion that the Samaritan people were worthless, second class, not valuable, not don't even bother socializing and interacting with them. Let's call down fire and kill them. The lawyer was prejudiced against Samaritans. The disciples were prejudiced against Samaritans. All of Israel did not like Samaritans. I ask you, what prejudices do you have? Who is it? Which group? When your mind begins to contemplate them, and your head begins to shake in disgust, in disdain. Is it immigrants? Those of different races, different ethnicities? Maybe you think of one ethnicity that you think, ah, oh, man, those people. Is it the poor or the homeless? Does your love stop when you see someone and you think to them yourself, why don't they just get a job? Why don't they just go to work? Is it the homosexual community? Surely they've, uh, they're encroaching on some of your values now, aren't they? They're getting aggressive towards you. So darn it, you're going to be aggressive right back, aren't you? Is it Muslims? They're all terrorists, right? They don't need mercy. They need judgment. So your mind thinks. Folks, when Jesus said, but then a certain Samaritan But then a certain Samaritan came, and when he saw the wounded man, he had compassion. When Jesus said those words, you and I should insert the words immigrant, homeless, homosexual, Muslim. Enter your prejudice here. And were Jesus standing before you now, teaching this parable, 
it is one of those categories that he would use to you and me. He would use one of those people groups that you are prejudiced against. Does that cause you angst? To think that someone you despise, that Jesus would use that someone as the hero of a story? Does that cause turmoil in you? A little bit of no, that, that's, that can't be the story. That can't be right. A homeless person wouldn't do that. A Muslim would not do that, Jesus. Come on. Let's be real. If it does cause angst and disarray and turmoil, it's uh, perhaps an indication of just how little you regard those people, how little you value those categories of people, those people whom you despise. They've been created in the image of God. God made them, each one of them, and he sent Jesus to die for them. For them. He sent Jesus to die for them. And you and I, we, we despise them, really? We despise ourselves if we do that. Lawyer, Jesus says, let me show you the limits of your love. Let me show you, lawyer, the limits of your love. Christian, let me show you the limits of your love. For the hero of this story was the Samaritan. It was the Samaritan who stopped to help. It was the immigrant who showed compassion. It was the homeless man who treated his wounds with oil and wine, medicine of the day. It was the homosexual who bandaged his wounds and took him to the inn. It was the Muslim who watched over him as he recovered. And when he could not watch him any further, gave the innkeeper valuable coins and said, I'll even pay more, whatever it takes, to ensure that this man is well treated. It was, insert your prejudice here, who was the hero. And Jesus then looks at the lawyer, looks at us as Christians today, and says, which of these three? Which of these three, verse 36, do you think was the hero? Was the neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Who's the hero? And the lawyer, he cannot so much as speak his identity. He cannot so much as put to words and identify the one whom he despises. He cannot bring himself to say it was the Samaritan. Instead, he says, with eyes downcast, he who showed mercy. Who is it, Jesus says? Who is the hero? The illegal immigrant, Jesus. Who? The homosexual was the hero, Lord. He was the hero of the story. Who? The Muslim Jesus. The Muslim was the hero of the story. Can we move on now? Oh, the Samaritan, Jesus says. Great. If you want to inherit eternal life, you go and be like that man. 
Go and be like him. Not like the priest, not like the Levites, not like the middle class, well-educated, respectable career, married with 2.5 kids and a dog, nice car, nice house, good, looks like you, acts like you, smells like you, socializes like you. Not that one. But instead, you go and be like the Samaritan, the immigrant, the homosexual, the homeless, the Muslim, the one who was the hero of the story. Now, nothing is said of what the man does after that. The story stops. There is no verse 38 that says, and the lawyer responded to Jesus in this way. Instead, we get another, another story. But we can speculate. There's really only two things the man did. We can only speculate which one it was. One, he walked away disgusted. He walked away disgusted, thinking only of how justified he is in his own prejudices toward others. Jesus, that's a ridiculous story. He walked away disgusted. That's one option. A second option, we can only wonder, is that he walked away humbled and convicted that there was, in fact, limits to his love and that he fell short of the law and was in danger of judgment. That's the response that Jesus was going for. That's why he angled his question in the way that he did because he knew that the lawyer needed to realize that he fell short that he fell short when it came to the law, when it came to good works, when it came to pious, when it came to being perfect. No, you're not. And let me show you how you're not. Let me show you where you're racist and prejudiced. Let me show you where your love stops. Right here. This is where your love stops. And when you see that person, that group, those people, you shut off. And you don't look anything like Jesus. A last thought. Jesus, boy, Jesus is the Samaritan, if you think about it. Jesus is, he epitomizes the Samaritan. He was on that treacherous road too. He wasn't going Jerusalem to Jericho. He was going Jericho to Jerusalem. He was going down a very treacherous journey in his earthly life. And all along the way, he was quick to stoop down and to help every single one, especially the ones who were despised and rejected, who were hurting, who were unlovely, He was the one who was going to those folks. And now, interestingly enough, Jesus, very much like this Samaritan, uh, he's left. Remember, the Samaritan, he he flipped two coins to the innkeeper and says, hey, I got to go. I've stayed one night, but I have to go now. Here's two denarii, two, two full day's wages. How much do you make in a day? Double it. That's what he gave the man. Here's two full days of my wages. I want you to watch over this man. I have to continue my journey, but I want you to watch over him. And when I come back, I'll repay you for whatever it takes to treat him. Jesus, like the Samaritan, he's left. He's left this earth. He's gone away. 
And he's entrusted innkeepers. You and me. To show grace and love. And like the Samaritan, he's given you, his innkeepers, valuable, valuable coins. Two of them, in fact. To care for the despised and the unlovely and the less fortunate. He's given you two valuable resources to do that. He's given you his word and he's given you his spirit. Which instruct us in heart and mind to know what God desires, which is to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. To look upon all and sundry and say, no matter who it is, I have my prejudices because I'm a fallen man or woman on this earth. I've looked upon people in terrible lights because of the evil in my heart. But God, no matter who it is, I now know how you wish me to treat them. I now hear the story. I will now minister actively, proactively reach out to those that I have once hated and I will love them as you've told me to and as you've inspired me to do so. I will love them in the way that you ask. If you come to that conclusion, you've really heard the story of the Good Samaritan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, only we know in our heart who we are prejudiced toward. We all have someone some group, some class, some ethnicity, some orientation, some other religion that we despise, God. We know which ones they are. And now we know, Lord, that uh, that, that is not in keeping with the heart that you want from us. You've given us resources, Lord, to defeat these prejudices. You've shown it through your word. You've given us your spirit who convicts our heart. May we not be walking away in disgust that the one we once hated was the hero of the story. But Lord, may we embrace it, learn from it, see the lesson in it, and try to imitate the lavish love and grace of Christ. Love and grace, Lord, that you poured out on us. You could have been so, so partial toward us, God. We sinned against you. We left you. We walked away from you. Your creation, we abandoned you. And you did not show prejudice toward us. But instead, you showed lavish love and grace. Let us show that, God, to all around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.